My topic is kind of a bit complicated, if you will. It's something that I've struggled with on and off for over a decade, and even currently, it's something that you can't easily manage by just turning your brain off and just enjoying something, whether you like it or not, and engaging with it on your own level, because it's a little bit more complex than that. And that's burnout. Even in the context of this podcast, recording this piece here has been kind of complicated because I tend to be the kind of person that nitpicks everything they do even after it's done because I always feel as if there's something I could have done better or done differently or omitted entirely, for example. But even in my creative endeavors, I finally sort of came to the realization within the last month or two that as sort of this period of my 20s is over, I'm basically sort of changing how I engage with media, with music, with all the things that that entails. And that's mostly I'm not contributing as much. And I've sort of accepted that, you know, ever since the pandemic last year, where I had to focus more on my real work and my real priorities. And it's really hard to say other than that, you know, that's what became important to me, not trying to make sure that this new record that I felt really passionate about that I wanted to get out there for everybody else to know. But how am I doing? You know, am I am I okay? And especially as my priorities change going into 2022, you know, my partner and I have a wedding to plan. We have actual real responsibilities and goals for ourselves that we would like to achieve within the next year or two at the most. And as much as this past decade has been trying to find myself and what I want to do, at least with this podcast, it's given me an approach to discussing topics and really, I guess, some form of content curation that I haven't really had before because at least with my history of being involved in the music community, whether it be on YouTube, in the print and digital space, it's kind of a bit of a weird outsider space where as someone on the spectrum, it's very easy to allow those obsessive natures of my personality to really take hold. And you would think, oh, you can just dive into a topic and then you'll be great at it, no problem. But it's not that easy. And even the idea of burnout in a, in a bigger sense started with the general friend group where sometimes I don't really want to hear about superhero movies or television shows or just things that are constantly ongoing and your interest in them is only designed to be as long as the span of it. I mean, at least for me, my tastes tend to vary all over the place. They always did. When I first got into, and when I say got into music, I mean really actually began to appreciate stuff that was outside of the sort of mainstream sources at that time. It was late 2010. I was close to finishing up high school, and I started listening to a lot of streaming services that at the time were only on the cusp of being really really promoted by a lot of mainstream sources. And it wasn't until 2011 that Spotify, for example, came into the U.S. It'd be a few years before Canada came along. But there were other services like Ardio and Mog and Pandora and Accuradio and TuneIn, of course. Several other apps that, in the course of the early to mid-2010s, really helped put streaming music on the map. But now, streaming is the majority, and I find myself using it to keep up with new music less and less and especially in the Canadian music journalism scene, I know that demographically I'm not really the super diverse perspective that people are looking for. And instead of putting my time and energy into 
making fantasy lists and essentially treating a music prize like it's fantasy sports but without the betting involved like that's not healthy and i kind of realized that this past spring when i realized i've been putting almost a decade of my time into something where i'm not really getting paid in actual capital for it it's just being paid in quote-unquote exposure if you will in some way and even in other smaller communities i'm a part of whether they're on social media or in person Maybe my personality's changing, and that's okay. It's okay to not want to engage with something because you know that it's all specifically designed to be constantly ongoing and constantly changing, and the social engineering aspect where there's that fear of missing out or FOMO if you miss even one part of something. As an example with superhero movies, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, when Avengers Infinity War came out, as soon as I saw there was a part one, I knew from the past from other franchises that had deliberately split up final entries in their franchises into two-part films because they could easily make double their money because the fan base is that devoted. I knew I had no need to see it until even after the next year when the second part came out. And I see that they've done it with things like Dune or... Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, or other films that, yes, in some cases are meant to be in multiple parts, other times it's, this. at least for me, a story or a plot does not have to be multiple parts unless it's absolutely necessary, and even then, the way my nature is, I could just as well compress it. But with music journalism, it's not as simple to really sit down, at least for my mindset, and you know, I'm going to cover X amount of records a week or X amount of records a month or push out this much content a month. Even with uh, the idea of TikTok as a platform, when I heard of TikTok last year, I had actually heard of it before when it was called Musical.ly in 2015. And even then, that sort of idea of new social media felt a little weird. But maybe that's just coming with age and the idea of getting older and your tastes changing and what you interact with becomes more refined and more specific to your... I guess narrow tastes and I don't like saying I have narrow tastes but especially when I can see records that will get shortlisted or longlisted for this potential prize and being able to literally look at reviews and look at the themes of the record and pretty much come to my own conclusion right away about how accurate it has a chance of doing those things it takes a lot of the fun out of it and also it's a it's a bit of a realization that Maybe I was never meant to fit into a scene of people in a major downtown area of inarguably the biggest urban center of the entire country. And that's totally fine because, so to speak, and to an extent Pop Talk has allowed me to, to have that feeling on a much smaller scale and a much more accessible one. I mean, the only Pop Talk episode I've been on was when Cody, Lyle, and I talked about Pink Floyd's discography, and that was a great challenge because I had really been out of the loop in terms of actually sitting down and listening through records, and in this case, an entire artist's discography, almost 50 years, that's half a century worth of music, and I was able to get myself up to that task and do it within a month. But I could not have told you like five years ago if I would have been able to commit to that. Because going from doing something like reviewing music, when you go from it being a hobby to it being your actual full-time work, there's a lot of expectations that come with it. There's a lot of time you have to set aside for it. And I just don't know if that was ever something that was meant for me. There's been all kinds of stuff like, like the TV show Survivor or specific bands 
or specific video game franchises that I've always thought, maybe if I have my own spin-off show, I can do all of that. But that's a lot of work to maintain that audience and build that audience. And frankly, it's not really something that I see in the cards for me, at least going forward. But I definitely welcome, you know, new creators to have their voices heard, no matter what their background is, what their identity is. I definitely still want to be up to date or at least try and listen to new stuff. It's just not going to be as frequent as it was before. You know, I realized in my early mid-20s, it was a lot more about being online and being on the pulse of things, whereas now it's okay to just, you know, sit back and let the younger generation sort of do that work a bit more, and I'll just sort of be in the back. You know, just kind of chill out and do things when I have the time for them, when I have the mental capacity for it. So at the end of a long work day, I come back, and that time is mine. I don't feel beholden to any other group or any other person other than my partner and even to use the term beholden doesn't sound right but just in this context the idea of when my job is done my job is done for that day the rest of the time i can do whatever whatever suits me and being burned out is totally fine and it just means that you're growing it means that you need to make a change and it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you it means it's a it's a healthy thing to want to re reorganize your your organizational approach and really reorganize how you talk about things. I mean, now I tend to tell things like they are, but I'm also not going to go and see every movie in, in certain franchise. I'm not going to go and do things just because they're what's popular. I'm going to really sit back and take a lot of input in before I consider stuff. And I think part of that's just mostly the environment changes or at least my life goals have certainly changed and who knows if in a few years that'll change you know the idea of being creative when i'm in my late teens and early 20s and living at home and have all that time and ability to do so as opposed to now where i'm going to be 30 in a few months and it feels different it feels that i can't quite do that to the same ability maybe it's been bad experiences that have led to that maybe it's you know feelings of inadequacy or feelings of you know I guess a complex you might call it, where I can tell there are people that do what I already do better than I ever could and sort of resigning myself to that fate. But the idea of all this hype culture and having to stay on top of things and, you know, constantly avoiding spoilers or just none of that matters to me anymore. I, I there's, there's too much going on and there's so much time that is still around that I want to be able to spend it to the fullest. And I hope a lot of what I said today resonated with some of you. I hope it made sense for the most part because I'm doing this pretty much freeform. And while I have my obviously my base idea, I'm always open to learning and growing as a quote unquote content creator. But especially as someone that really feels like with So To Speak in particular, I've been on podcasts before in the past, but here I feel like I have equal opportunity in what I can bring to the table as a personality, but also in terms of flow and logistics and general presence but it's such an equal opportunity thing that i really appreciate you know having a space to do something like this so i really do want to thank everyone for for listening to this and you know maybe some of the ideas i talked about will come to fruition sometime i don't know but it's okay to want to stop doing what you're doing and refocus and change ideas i mean when i started doing a youtube channel in 2011 
I would do like once a week, I'd try and do something. But then I kind of got bored with that and unable to keep up. And then I tried again with uh, some other platforms in 2012 and onwards. And when I went to college in 2012 for radio, that got easier because I had that you know background of being able to listen to stuff and try and bring it in. And I thought, you know, being on the cutting edge. But sometimes it's okay to not be on the cutting edge. It's okay to, to disconnect sometimes, especially with the pandemic. It's really been an appreciative time because I can just have time to sit my own thoughts and let and let things sort of try and work themselves out. But burnout's a good thing. I know I've I've said that a couple times now, but I don't have much else to say other than, you know, 2022 is going to bring a lot of hopefully positive change to my life and hopefully to your life as well. And, you know, I know the holiday season can be kind of rough for people sometimes. So check in on your friends and your family and you know at least talk to people if you're going through anything it it helps to at least have a support network which i'm extremely grateful to have and i feel like you know even this this one segment is a great platform for that so i thank you very much for listening to this and i'll definitely see you on the next episode of so to speak that i'm on whenever that is but until then thank you hello ladies and gentlemen this is Lyle here. I hope you're having a lovely December. And today I thought for my last straw, I'd get a nice tall pint glass of eggnog mixed with Baileys. And I just want to sit by the fire and tell you how much of a cinematic genius Tim Allen is. <sighs> yeah. Let's just take a step back. You know how popular musicians will often release you know, a Christmas single or a cover just to kind of capitalize on the novelty of a Christmas song because it pays handsomely in royalties. Tim Allen basically cornered the market on incredibly mediocre Christmas films that are yet very successful and talked about year after year. And that's amazing because he puts so little effort into each of these movies with a few, bar a few exceptions, that it truly astounds me on such a level that he was able to get this many Christmas movies cranked out. No pun intended. <laughs> we have five movies to talk about today, and I'm going to give a brief review and a ranking for each of them. And I guess what we have to start with here is the 1994... The year of our Lord, 1994, when cinema was basically perfected, <laughs> we have ourselves the first Santa Claus. The first of a trilogy. And to be honest, with this movie, I don't hold it with the most reverence that I see most other people when we have, whenever it's brought up. I don't like it very much. It's a very, uh, it's, it's a good shaggy dog story, I suppose. You have a divorced man who's trying to you know, take after, take care of his son. He doesn't like uh, his ex-wife's uh, new uh, beau. And he's having a really rough go of things. Even though he works as a toy executive, he makes a lot of money, but he, there's something missing in his life. It's very much, if I had to make a comparison that has been made a billion times, it's very much like Ant-Man. You have like this down on his luck character named Scott, who wants to spend more time with his uh, child. And then an elderly man gives him the opportunity to become a supernatural force of nature 
and uh, uh, save the world, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, with the Santa Claus, I feel like my main reason of disliking it is that I just find Tim Allen's, like, approach to the comedy in this film to be kind of, like, a little dated, a little trying to be edgy, but it's just not landing. And I don't like the look of the film either. It's very drab. The colors are very, like, dim. And most of the movie, the film would rather spend time with Calvin losing custody of his child. It's like, I can't believe you're being Santa just to hurt our child's psychology! Child custody revoked! You know that? And that takes up a surprisingly large amount of the movie. And I'm like, do, do I really need people to say, oh... I don't think Scott Santa Claus is clearly a mental disorder. He's gaining weight. He must have mental problems. And I'm just like, oh, who gives a shit? He's Santa. <laughs> just have him do Santa Claus things. Why are we dwelling on this so much? Oh my god. I also think the visual effects have aged remarkably rough. Especially the reindeer scenes and the flying segments. And the North Pole itself is kind of lacking in a lot of areas in terms of production quality. The whole film kind of feels like a TV movie. And it's these kinds of things that really pull me out of it. I think the only part of the movie I liked was with the elves. Like the, the secret badass task force of kids going around kicking the ass out of police officers to break Santa out of jail. I liked all those scenes. I thought that was fun. I, it it kind of gave me baby genius vibes, but, you know, just better, you know? Overall, I think the Santa Claus, while it has its merits, it, it is dogged by a lot of things, and I wouldn't go so far as to call it a classic. I would probably, if I had to give it a rank, I'd, it's kind of maybe a light B if I had to be super generous, or a high C if I was, you know, being realistic. Because it has its moments, I understand why people look back at it fondly. I just personally don't like it very much. But compared to the other films I'm about to talk about, it is unquestionably one of the better ones in this list. So for that reason, I'll give it a light B. And um, then in 2002, a good eight years after the first movie, we have The Santa Claus 2. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little spicy here. I'm going to give a little bit of a hot take. I think The Santa Claus 2 is a huge step up from the first one in almost every way. Now, Scott Calvin has fully embraced the Santa Claus, but here, Scott has to get married because he didn't read the second Santa Claus that was buried in a note somewhere. And, um, yeah, he's like, oh, I gotta get married and handle Christmas. Whatever shall I do? And, uh, he builds... A robotic Santa Claus <laughs> to take over the North Pole. And oh boy, does he ever take over the North Pole. Um, okay, so a couple things. I'm going to mention a few positives with this movie. Um, Tim Allen, despite how I don't really like him as an actor, despite how I think he gives like always like a half-assed kind of re like performance in almost everything he does, this is the most committed performance I think I've ever seen from him. He has to play a, a handsome, romantic interest, uh, Scott Calvin. He has to be Santa, which I think he does a really good job of in this entry specifically. And he also has to play an evil counterpart 
that's so hell-bent on uh, punishing every child for doing something even remotely wrong. It is the most dedication I've ever seen him put in any movie, and I think not a lot of, not enough people give him credit. Gosh darn it. And another person worth showing out, I think Elizabeth Mitchell, who plays Carol, the, uh, the initially frosty uh, principal who warms up to Calvin and falls in love with him. I think she does a really great job. I'm actually surprised looking at her filmography that she hasn't really shown up in much since. But I thought she was great. I loved watch I loved every scene with the two of them together. Uh, that was great. And even though her character kind of goes from like, you know, kind of like an ice queen to like uh, a warmer like romantic lead it, it, in a very short amount of time, not a lot of development. Um I think it's I think it's still serviceable. Um, what else do I love? I, I gotta say, like, everything looks nicer in this movie. The production design is a lot better. I think the North Pole feels like a real location that I'd want to visit. Like, if they made, like, a, a section in Disney World where it's, like, the North Pole, this set would be the perfect, uh, play place for children. I don't know. It's like, everything's more colorful. Everything pops more. I get more of the Christmas spirit out of this one. And I don't really know why people dislike it so much. And you have like some, you have like Spencer Breslin shows up at one point, and it's like, hey, he, this, why is this kid in so many Tim Allen movies? He's in the Shaggy Dog. He's in Zoom Academy for Superheroes. I yes, I remember that movie. I don't, don't ask me why. And he's in Santa Claus Two and Three, which we'll get to eventually. Don't rush me. But yeah, I don't know. Like I think, I think Santa Claus Two for a late sequel, it does a really good job. It's not perfect by any stretch, and I can see why people may not like the toy Santa, because it's kind of a crazy, insane idea to have a robotic Santa end up being like a dictator and ruining um, the North Pole for everyone, <laughs> and giving everyone coal, and having the same plot is essentially ages. He's basically Ultron from Age of Ultron. Sorry for all the Marvel references. I know it's not real cinema, but just bear with me. And yeah, I don't know. Santa Claus 2? I actually like it a lot. I'd give it a B. It has a few things that keep me from going A to S with it because, you know, it's not it's not an above and beyond Christmas movie, but I think it's a lot better than the first one. I think it's a lot better than a lot of people give credit. And then after that in 2004 we have Christmas with the Cranks with a really bored Tim Allen and a really miscast Jamie Lee Curtis. But yeah, Christmas with the Cranks, which was written by Christopher Columbus, the director of, like, Home Alone, like the first two Home Alones. Like, he, that man knows seasons, right? He knows the seasonal spirit. But then you have Christmas with the Cranks, which is one of the most mean-spirited holiday films I've ever seen. And this is coming from a guy who loves movies like Black Santa, where the dark comedy just oozes radiantly in those types of movies. Here, it's just kind of... It's just kind of ill-tempered. You have two people who don't want to spend Christmas at their home. They want to go on a vacation. But everyone in the town... I, this has got to be the closest... The most close-knit community I've ever seen in a movie. It's like the fucking Stepford Wives. <laughs> After a while. Where they're all like, oh, You're abandoning Christmas! You're a horrible person! And Tim Allen and Jamie were like, no, look, we just want to go out. We don't want to spend. <laughs> and that goes on for like a whole hour. <laughs> but inexplicably, the last half hour of this movie almost works. 
Because eventually they realize that they should spend Christmas here and their daughter's coming. It's like, oh, she expected us to stay here for Christmas and she's going to get bring her fiancé. Oh, it's a disaster. And then everyone in town's like, well, help you get through it, cranks. And they uh, team up and they make a make a really nice holiday uh, season. They make the, They decorate the house really nice and it's all cleaned up. And then, yeah, there's some mishaps along the way. But, I don't know, it's like, it's weird, because it, it feels like I'm watching a completely different movie. I'm like, what the hell, I'm actually kind of enjoying this third part of this stupid movie? Am I crazy? Um, some shout-outs, of course. I really enjoyed Dan Aykroyd and Eric Per Sullivan. Where are you, Eric Per Sullivan? We missed you so much. You were so good back then. I don't know what... I, I mean, you can do whatever you want, but, like, I, I, I just miss you. You were the best part of Malcolm in the Middle, and you're one of the highlights of this. So, I don't know. But, yeah, Christmas the Cranks always leaves a bad taste in my mouth whenever I think about it. I think it... I, I kind of compare it to that... I forget... I think it's called Deck the Halls, the one with Matthew Broderick and Danny DeVito. Like, it's, it's just, like... I don't know what why there's this trend in the mid-2000s where you had to have Christmas be this competitive, ugly, toxic holiday where everyone has to one-up each other and everyone has to be in such a foul mood. It's like, oh, the family's coming, damn it! Like, I don't, I don't want to watch that. I want to watch movies that have a little bit more of a... a little bit more warmth to them. I mean, Christmas Vacation, you could argue, has a little bit of that, ugh, holidays suck. But at least it, like, ties it all together by the end in a neat way and it's entertaining all the way throughout but like i don't know christmas of the cranks is like really not that fun for me to revisit i definitely wouldn't want to see it again unless i just cut the first hour out and just watch the last third like this is the kind of movie if you watched it on tv and you walked in in just the right moment you'd be like that was a pretty good movie then you had to suffer through the first 60 minutes and you're just like well I'm getting kind of annoyed at this movie. I don't know. I think uh, I think I might just want to step out for a minute. Sorry. I don't know what to rate this. It's not like... it's. I don't know if it's like an F or a D. I think I'm just going to give it a D because I think it's just sort of lacking in so many areas that where it's just not as fun as it should be. I think it's like... A little too over the top as well and I don't mind over the top but for this it's just like I wish there was a bit more a little bit more fun in this I wish I wasn't like rolling my eyes every time Tim Allen was like ah what an idiot oh I did something stupid but they're an idiot and the neighbors like yeah thanks for giving us a vacation trip even though my wife is suffering from an illness um, but we still don't like you ah, I don't like you either okay bye <sighs> D. Yeah, I mean, I think Christmas of the Cranks is a D movie. But, um, two years later, I don't know what it is with Tim Allen and even numbers. Like, these movies are coming up in, like, our twos, fours, and sixes. What's up with that? And then we have probably one of my least favorite movies of all time. I'm just going to be completely transparent here. Uh, The Santa Claus 3, The Escape Clause. I didn't even bother rewatching this movie. Because it's painful. <laughs> Everything about it is painful. I think it's a, it's easily the worst Claws movie. Even though it's trying its damnedest to do everything it can to be, like, bigger and better than the other two. Like, it's trying to have so many more effects. 
It's trying to have a centralized villain played by Martin Short. And he's a... Uh, I love Martin Short, but hot damn. <laughs> this is probably my least favorite performance by him as Jack Frost. And I can't even really... Ex I can barely remember the plot. I remember, like, the first hour. It's like... Carol's parents are visiting... And Scott's like, oh no, I'm working this month because it's December. So what am I going to do? And so, why, don't, why does Tim Allen sound like Jerry Seinfeld? <laughs> but um, he has them over, come over to the North Pole, and he makes a false claim. He's like, oh, you're in, you're in Canada. Ha-ha. That's where we are. <laughs> like, oh, it's so, also, that's why it's so cold. I don't understand. Like, if you live in the southwest area of Canada, we actually barely get any snow until January. Whatever. And then... Oh, and of course everyone speaks French. Haha. -ha. And then we have... After the in-laws come in, not much happens for like an hour. I think like... his. Like, I think Carol's mad at Claus because it's like, Oh, you don't spend any time with me this time of year. I'm like, yeah, because I'm Santa. You knew this when you married me. <laughs> and then I think he has like this... This this uh, conflict of 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 interpersonal issues, conflict of interest. That's the word that was stuck in my tongue. Where it's like, uh, I just wish I knew what it was like before I was Santa Claus. Like it pulls like the whole Shrek Forever After kind of thing, or the It's a Wonderful Life trope. Where it's like, man, what if this scenario played out like this? And Jack Frost, who's been sick of being in the shadows of all the holidays, like superstars. He's like, mm, now's my chance to take over the North Pole. <laughs> and so, in a last act that's basically Avengers Endgame, Scott gets sent to the past. He realizes that Jack Frost has completely uh, commercialized the North Pole and turned it into like an amusement park, which, to be fair, was the most interesting aspect of the movie. And then he has to go back to the moment where he was almost he he uh, killed Santa Claus. Uh, that's a whole other story in and of itself. The the whole concept of the Santa Claus is a little weird. It's like if you die as Santa Claus, um, the next person to wear your clothes becomes Santa Claus, whether they want to or not. I don't know what happens to the, each Santa Claus's Mrs. Claus. I don't know if they just like leave the North Pole and they're like, well, I guess I'll go back to my life now. Bye. But, yeah, that happens each and every time, I guess. Uh, it's just an endless cycle. It's like James Bond, you know? The next person takes over, and we never speak of it again. But, yeah, that's... I don't know. What can I say about uh, Santa Claus 3 that hasn't been said before? Um, I just... It, it's one of the most teeth-grindingly obnoxious movies I've ever sat through. And it, I would easily put it in my top ten least favorite movies. I mean, like, I, I, I don't want to sit through it ever again. So I'm going to have to put in F easily. Like, just skip this one. Just watch the other two. And, uh, yeah, that was the last Tim Allen movie regarding Christmas for the longest, longest time. Until, and you're going to be shocked and amazed to hear this, 2017. Oh, an odd number. Well, better late than never. We have ourselves El Camino Christmas from 2017. Um, I think this is a Netflix movie. I saw it on Netflix, so I don't know if that means anything. <laughs> but, yeah, it's... It's a movie where Tim Allen plays an army veteran. Or, like, a, you know, like a 
someone who was like discharged and all that like he's just sort of like a mess he's an alcoholic he's like abrasive to everyone he's not even really the main character but the idea is that a, a stranger comes to the, a small town el camino like you know pretty close to the border and he's just like looking for his dad and he bumps into tim allen it's like oh are you gonna help me find my dad it's like sure let's just get loaded first and uh, through a series of really contrived uh, moments, uh, the whole movie basically ends up in a convenience store where, like, everyone's held hostage, the police are surrounding the place, and the, it's, like, a really ugly situation where they can't get out and they can't negotiate. My biggest problem with this movie is that I think, I think one reviewer on Letterboxd uh, nailed it on it, it's the most apt uh review i've ever seen on letterbox half of the cast in this movie believes that they're in super troopers they believe that this is like a really like crazy comedy and the other half treat it like a really serious crime drama like dog day afternoon and neither of those films should be put in the same sentence but that's exactly what el camino christmas feels like vincent d'onofrio and dax shepherd even kurtwood smith they look like they're having a lot of fun. Like, Vincent is just playing, like, the most insane, like, like insanely bad cop you ever seen. He, like, drinks, and he's candy bars, and like, ah, fuck, I hate my job. And he's just, he's just a loose cannon. And Dax Shepard just plays, like, the dopiest police officer you'll ever see. And there's, like, a lot of s scenes where, like, he's accidentally shooting at the cops instead of his target. And that's all well and good. But... I, then you get to like stuff and even like tim allen's dialogue i gotta admit like tim allen's performance here it's not bad actually i don't mind him in this i think if he wasn't in it it wouldn't feel the same and i like a lot of his monologues i like a lot of his like chattiness like he comes up with all these like he just complains a lot and it's amusing because he looks like an old grandpa just going like ah, i just want some whiskey that kind of stuff um, but yeah, like I said, the tone is where this movie struggles the most. It's like they couldn't find a proper balance between slapstick or like over the top comedy or just like, a, oh, that's kind of a crazy situation. Boy, howdy, how are we going to get out of this one, fellas? To like this like drama that really wants to hit us hard in the gut a lot of the time and it wants to have social like issues like, you know, police brutality and like uh, abuse of power. And, like, just how veterans are treated after the war, or, like, you know, immigration policies. Like, a lot of this stuff is crammed into this movie that when I saw the trailer, I thought it was a comedy. And I'm like, this is not a comedy. It barely even qualifies as a Christmas movie. Like, I don't know. It's just a very weird, like, movie. I don't know how to feel about it. I, I think the reason why it's so lowly regarded is that... It doesn't really work as a drama. It doesn't work as a comedy. It's too infrequent trying to do both. And a lot of the time, not a lot is happening because they spend so much time in the store. <coughs> and with that in mind, I, I would probably give this a D. I don't know. Like, I think the only thing that kind of elevates it is the cast. I do enjoy a lot of the cast. Even Jessica Alba's in this movie, which I haven't seen her in ages. And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, I don't know. It's It's... I would maybe say watch it at least once and try to make your own, try to get your own opinion out of it, but I don't know, it's either a D or a C for me, because it's just not very effective at what it wants to do, and with that I'd probably 
You know, okay, I, I got, I'll, I'll be generous. It's more like a C, because I would at least watch it over, like, some of these other movies, like Christmas with the Cranks or Santa Claus 3. Like, I think it's better than those two. But I, well, I just a heads up, it's not a very good Christmas movie. You could probably watch it any time of the year and still get the same effect. I don't know. Oh, another thing I should mention. Tim Allen, like I, I've said before, he's very good in this. He does a scene in this movie that actually floored me because I'd never seen him do a scene quite like this ever in any of his movies. Like I, it was a first for me. I think it was a first for him too, as far as I can remember. And it's always kind of it's kind of weird to see a character like a, a character actor who you always see uh, in roles where they're always silly, and then it just takes such a dark turn in a movie like this that. I don't know, it hit me in a weird way, honestly. Didn't know how to feel about it, but it, it was interesting, and that's one element that I would point out uh, that stood out from the rest of these movies, for sure. Huh, well that was fun, I discussed all the uh, films I remember from uh, Tim Allen's collection of Christmas Cavalcades. Um, I'm kind of disappointed there's not a single movie in the A or S tier. Huh, I gotta do something about that. Oh, the ending of Toy Story. The ending of Toy Story. They, you have Andy and his family. There, there's a tree, and the army men are in the tree. It's like, oh, this is what Andy's getting for Christmas this year. It's like, Mrs. Potato Head, Mrs. Potato Head. Hey, guy can dream. Yeah, if I get a female dinosaur, I could be the dominant predator. <laughs> it's a very short scene, kind of insignificant. They actually tacked it on because Michael Eisner was like, you should have, like, a reaction shot from the guys when they get a dog. It's like, okay, we'll do that right now, whatever, we're spending billions on this, but okay. And, um, you know what? If a Shane Black movie can tack on Christmas at the end of his movies and then qualify as Christmas movies, then goddammit, Toy Story's a Christmas movie. <laughs> it's official. And it gets an S tier. Toy Story's one of the best movies of all time! Best Tim Allen movie! Yeah! <coughs> Is this a rant about Hollywood producers, or is this a rant about moviegoers? Maybe it's a little bit of both. A few weeks ago, I saw Ghostbusters Afterlife in the theater with Lyle and Cody. Despite the fact that we were having a fun night out at the cinema, there seemed to be an expectation going into this film. And by expectation, I mean that we were kind of expecting it to be a nostalgia fest that referenced the original Ghostbusters constantly by showing characters, vehicles, and props that we had seen before in the classic 80s comedy, and it would just be yet another retread without uh, it trying to be something new. I personally thought Ghostbusters Afterlife was just all right. And some of the nostalgia baiting moments uh, I did find a bit charming, but ultimately, the movie was just okay. Uh, this predisposed sense of dissatisfaction based on nostalgia alone disheartens me a bit. And whenever Hollywood revives a classic franchise with a sequel 15 to 20 years after the fact, I typically get a little excited depending on what franchise is being rebooted or is getting a sequel. I genuinely want the film to entertain me, but sometimes it feels like I am not allowed to enjoy the movie just for the fact alone that it has 
nostalgia in it. It is obvious that for the past six years, starting in 2015 specifically, Hollywood has gone on a consistent streak of reviving franchises with overdue sequels that feel like reboots as well as remakes. I feel like the reason Hollywood keeps doing this is for two reasons. Number one is obvious. People keep paying to see these movies. And number two is because moviegoers are constantly complaining about the current film market. They're just aren't that many there are some good movies out there don't get me wrong it's just that they're not really marketed to the same degree as the bigger movies are like the franchise re the franchise retreads and all that jazz a common question movie buffs keep asking is why don't they make movies like they used to anymore Hollywood seems to be listening to this conjecture, and it responds by making sequels like Jurassic World, Star Wars The Force Awakens, Mary Poppins Returns, and the list goes on. These are meant to be uh, continuations of the older stories that came out decades prior, but they tend to feel like retreads of their original counterparts. I know we've heard we've we've seen uh the Force Awakens get compared to, you know, A New Hope in terms of its story beats. Mary Poppins Returns uh did feel like it was a retread of the first Mary Poppins and Jurassic World uh I think I mentioned this in uh, our overrated movies uh episode of so to speak where like yeah, it ultimately is just a retelling of Jurassic Park but with us there is enough of original story going on there of an original setting like what happens if you know the concept of a theme park with dinosaurs got uh actually open to the public so that part I actually liked but other than that it is very much you know like a a retelling of Jurassic Park now, some of these sequels are done really well, don't get me wrong, and they can stand on their own from their predecessors. Uh, a good example is uh, Mad Max Fury Road. And I know Blade Runner 2049 got mixed reviews, uh, but uh, as someone who has seen both Blade Runners, I thought the new Blade Runner 2049, uh, there was a lot going on in that movie that made it stand apart from the original. And... Uh, to be honest, I still enjoy checking out uh, these sequels or franchise revivals every now and again. Um, because, like, in the moment, they are fun. I tend to enjoy them. But, you see, that's the thing. I enjoy checking them out. But other people, not so much. I feel like a lot of the reason the, you know, Hollywood franchise revivals get a lot of blowback is because of uh, online... Internet personalities like Cinema Sins, uh, Red Letter Media with Half in the Bag, and uh, YMS. These guys like will pick apart movies for like the slightest of details. Cinema Sins happens to be the worst because even though they describe themselves as a satire channel, they're uh, jokes about movies are getting mistaken for actual criticism of movies, and as a result, uh, the the millions of subscribers that that CinemaSins has, they just go into contemporary films these days, and they'll nitpick any uh, any given movie to death. 
that's really annoying. But um, I was recently when I watched the uh, Red Letter Media half in the bag review of Ghostbusters Afterlife, they were really picking on the movie for you know just it felt like they were picking on the movie for daring to have things in it that reminded us of the original Ghostbusters. Now, to be fair to Red Letter Media, Ghostbusters Afterlife is has its similarities to the original Ghostbusters. There are a couple of scenes, there are several scenes that are lifted directly from the 1980s movie. And uh, instead of creating like a new villain for the new Ghostbusters to come up with, to instead of sorry, instead of creating a new villain for the new Ghostbusters to fight, they just do what they did with Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker, and they brought back uh, the original villain Gozer. Now, it, Gozer's return wasn't nearly as bad or forced as the return of, say, Emperor Palpatine, but uh, it's still like the fans were asking, you know, can we have something more? Now, the issue is, thanks to these criticisms, you know, once in a while, I don't mind, you know, having going to see a good nostalgic romp. But if I'm trying to genuinely enjoy myself with the movies and just have fun for a couple of hours... It's kind of disheartening to, you know, go and listen to these criticisms thinking, oh, like, the fact that it was nostalgic does not mean that it's good. And if you actually think it's a good movie, then you're just simple-minded who's paying to see dangling car keys. I, when criticizing a movie, you can have your criticisms of a movie, but I draw the line at, talking down to the audience and i feel like that's what a lot of these youtube personalities are doing they you know get the audience that just paid money to go see the mo- the new movie in the theater and then they talk down to them for enjoying it or for paying money to see it because they attack they first by they start by attacking you know hollywood's quality w- of how they approach reviving movies and what they do is they make you feel kind of stupid for enjoying it. And uh, the Marvel movies, you know, I've had a lot of fun with the Marvel movies over the years. But they are a common, you know, target for this type of criticism. And the Marvel movies are often blamed for killing modern day cinema. And it's no wonder that this theory gets a lot of traction with a lot of, you know... Uh, critically acclaimed directors like Denis Villeneuve and Martin Scorsese, you know, offering their two cents on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But anyways, so what's one to make of all this? Like, you'd think that these critics and movie buffs would just, you know, stop complaining and, you know, cry out for original content, like original ideas and new ideas to, you know, make going to the movies feel fresh again. The problem with that is uh, whenever new movies, new and original ideas do come out, they are sadly, uh, they are sadly um, accused of being ripoffs of older classics. 
So, I mean, and genuinely, Hollywood uh, doesn't like to take a lot of risks with the type of movies that get made. And it kind of reminds me of this uh, other rant, uh, or not really a rant, but more of a talk that Chris Stuckman did last week, where he talks about, you know, why aren't they making movies the way they used to anymore? And he raises some excellent points. I'd highly recommend going to check that out. So, like I was saying, the film go the film buffs they and moviegoers they look at you know the franchise retreads and the you know homage paying to classic films with you know the new revivals and they just say oh it's bad because it you know tries to, it capitalizes on nostalgia and capitalizing on nostalgia is not good filmmaking okay well are you going to pay to see something original like uh the green knight or something oh no that's a ripoff of blah 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 and then the cycle just repeats itself like you say you want original ideas but then you don't pay to see the original ideas that movie studios take risks on and then the films that sell familiarity like the uh, franchise retreads, uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe installments, or even the live-action Disney remakes. People are paying to see those, and they're not paying to see the original content. So, um, I don't claim... Despite the fact that I am a filmmaker myself, I don't claim to have the answer to change You know this trend. Um, I wish I could just say it's as simple as, you know come up with original ideas but um i feel like you know part of us takes movies to take movies too seriously and i feel like you know we need to just shut up and enjoy the movies a little more because we're getting harsher with our criticism and movies are just you know a way to escape they're not like you know windows into the meaning of life or whatever and i know that sounds ironic because, um, you know, I am a filmmaker myself and I do take film very seriously. That's not to say I don't have respect for the craft. Filmmaking, uh, making a movie or writing a script or talking about movies is my way of relating to people and relating to the world that I live in. So, I don't know. That's just my two cents. Uh, I just wish people would stop being so harsh on, you know, movies that I think are okay. I wish movies that I think are okay would not be, you know, lambasted for daring to, you know, be nostalgic. But there are some instances where the nostalgia baiting is done right. Um, and there are plenty of instances where the nostalgia baiting is done wrong and is just pandering. So I guess what I'm trying to say is don't take it too seriously at the movies. Have fun, lighten up, and shut up and enjoy the movie. <laughs>